That's James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. Please stand for the reading of God's word. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing comes also in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet. Have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the law, the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. Mercy triumphs over judgment. Thank you. You may be seated. The rest of us know where to go in our Bibles to James 2. We talked about anxiety in Sunday school being exclusively and best resolved by God and His Word. Why is that? If God would allow us to take a medicine for something that He alone can do best, we'd gather together as His people and fellowship around a medicine. Wow, I took this medicine. It really helped my anxiety. We just sang, You are the one we adore. He would much, and Brandon, thank you so much for pointing us to that. He would much rather us gather together in fellowship and say, God is the one who helped me with my anxiety this week. Because he tells us to be anxious for nothing. But in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let our requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God that surpasses all understanding will keep our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That's where there's no anxiety, when our hearts and our minds are in Christ, and we know we're there, we're safe and secure. What a wonderful God we serve. And we're gathered together to praise Him and honor him, and as we look at his word, I pray that you came today thinking 
James is going to ask me to do something, and I'm going to be a doer of the word, not a hearer only. If you were not here last week, you can go back and listen to that message, or you can read James 1, 22 to 27, and be challenged. Every time we meet as a church, we should be thinking, doing, doing the word, not hearing, doing. Tonight, another opportunity, I'm good. I've studied through the book of uh, Daniel, and so we're going to have family devotions. It's going to feel like that on, when, or on Sunday nights, so if you were here... Um, during the summer, we watched a video, and then we had a discussion time, and then we prayed based on what we learned from different books of the Old Testament. We're going to do something similar to that. We'll have, uh, if you were to have a family devotion time at your house, what should you include? Uh, probably some of the Word, some singing, some praying. So that's what Sunday night's going to be like. It's going to be very different than t- this morning. This morning's very formal. We're all dressed up. We all sit, we say the right thing, we do the right thing, but tonight we're going to sit probably in a circle here in the fellowship hall. We're going to look at Daniel 1. I'll have some discussion questions that we'll discuss as a church family. Uh, We'll praise the Lord, and then we will pray to the Lord based on what we learn from Daniel 1. So that's the plan for Sunday nights. Uh, Typically, unless someone else, uh, a special speaker or whatever, will uh, come in here or have a missionary or... Like last week, Ted uh, preached for us. He did a great job. So, uh, But our typical Sunday night format is going to be like family devotions. Why do we do this? Well, John Sparkman and I have talked as elders about enhancing personal devotions, and that's Sunday school's goal. Uh, and the teachers know that, that to help people walk with the Lord personally, that's our goal in Sunday school. So we have different age groups because a Someone who is four to six years old is going to learn a different level than someone who is an adult or someone who's in, in high school. And so the teachers are teaching in a way that if you studied your Bible, it would help you to study your Bible at home. So the teachers are told, I'm going to encourage all the Sunday school teachers, share with your class on a weekly basis how the Word of God and how your relationship with God has grown. And you'll find, and I have found, that the teachers in my life that shared personal stories like that their personal stories, even in math class in college, I remember the personal stories way more than I learned calculus. And that's what stuck with me, was that my teacher cried over these kids that he was going out and ministering to on the weekend. He'd come back Monday to a calculus class and tell me how he ministered and um, how God uh, broke his heart for some kids that he was, uh, like a detention center or something like that, that he was ministering to. And... Um, This guy wasn't in ministry. He was just a math teacher. Uh, But all of us as Christians should be pouring our lives into other people, especially in Sunday school, especially when we come here and gather as God's people, especially when we have fellowship time and, and Wednesday night and Sunday night. All the times we gather together, we're pouring into each other what God has done for us and how to help those around us. Well, James doesn't let up in his whole book. So if you expected some lighter messages, that's not James, okay? And God's Word's going to challenge us as it challenged me this week with James 2. We read it. We'll go back there in verses 1 to 13. And you can see the title is Christ-like Mercy for All. We have, in our culture, unwritten rules of a status, 
I pulled into, um, or I was behind a car one time that was an SUV, and upon closer looking at this SUV, on the back of the SUV said Lamborghini. Like, whoa. Uh, I'm not a super car nut, but I know Lamborghini is not Kia, Hyundai, Honda. Lamborghini is several steps above that. And uh, I don't even know where you buy a Lamborghini, let alone like uh, driving one. But if you, if some somebody, I don't know if we had any Lamborghinis last night at our car show. I don't think we did. Um, I didn't see any. But if you drive a very expensive car, your status symbol is your car. Anywhere you go, everybody's going to say, whoa, look at that car. He must have or she must have money, right? So we attach car or house or other things, uh, could be handbags for ladies or certain clothing or jewelry, that if we wear certain things, then we are in a different status than other people. If you go to other countries, sometimes it's very, there's very distinct, we, in India you probably know of the caste system. They say there's no caste system, but everybody there probably still knows there's a caste system. And other, uh, other countries may have different tribes or different unwritten rules in their culture that you never, you never associate or you look down on people that are below you and you always look to people above you saying, oh, I, I can never, never get up there. And there's a hopelessness. And so James 1 already had, uh, um, told us about our position with poor and wealthy and that we shouldn't, we're all the same in Christ. And he's going to build on that idea in James 2 because we all struggle with uh, partiality. We all will look at someone and if they look different than us, they smell different than us, they may smoke different than us, they may drink different than us. They may drive different than us. They may live in a house that's very different than us. We will either look down on them or look and say, I could never be up there. And it probably really shows itself in um, the, the, the different systems of how we look at people and where people are, social classes in marriage. I went to a school, college, that didn't allow interracial dating. And I, when I came here, there was someone that challenged me and said, you went to a racist school. I said, no, I didn't. That was my initial reaction. And then I looked back and said, yes, I did. Because there aren't many races. I looked at a Sunday school paper for, that we taught in Sunday school probably last Sunday. I don't know what age it was. It was elementary. And it said on the top of the Sunday school paper, there's one race, the human race. That's it. Our culture, to this day, wants us to fill out paperwork and identify a race. Because there's all kinds of, and I've talked to other people that say, if you're a certain race, you've got a better chance of getting government funding for education. You've got a, a better chance of getting a promotion in work because there are expectations that the uh, Higher-ups in most big companies have to have an equal number of certain races, and it is so, so we are, we live in so much of a racially um, 
a very racially dominated culture. There's no other way to put it. So we look at people around us. You may have neighbors that are different for no other, different nationality. I'm not going to use the word race because there's only one race. If you have, and I've told you this before, if you have a, an option to put other and race, do that and just write human. I do it. I write, there is no races. There's not black and Asian and Hispanic and, and uh, Southeast Asian and all kinds of, and uh, Caucasian. That's, that's not helpful at all. That's divisive. But our culture, especially the media, loves divisiveness. Do you remember Black Lives Matter and Blue Lives Matter? You still see signs for it. Why? Because we are racially, we want to, many people want to have these different divisions because that keeps going the conflict. And if you're in the news industry, you want conflict because then you have news. But we as Christians, we don't want conflict. We don't need to make the news and we don't need conflict with each other. We need to think biblically about others. So let's, James gives us a lot of help in thinking. And if we're thinking right, then we'll act right with how we treat other people. And that's what this passage is about. So we got right with God, hopefully in James 1. And as we're, we've got the word of God and it's working in us, it's changing us. We're looking at the mirror of God's word and we're walking away saying, I've got to change. And if we will saturate our lives with the word of God, and say, God, whatever you see, whatever I see in your word, I'm going to obey it. We will be growing as Christians. That's our relationship with God. Now James is going to turn in, in chapter 2 and say, now we're going to talk about your relationship with other people. And James 2 and 3 and 4 are all going to deal with this topic of how do we treat other people? And we need to think biblically if we're going to avoid cultural confusion when it comes to um, nationality and partiality. Um, so let's look at James 2, verse 1. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while, um, sorry, I just lost my place. Pay attention to the one who wears fine clothes, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit at my feet. Have you not then made distinction among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? So the first thing that we're going to see, James tell us, is the rebuke. He rebukes us for partiality. All of us struggle with partiality. If Tim Tebow walked in the back door, and he's a Christian, and all of us, you may know him. If you don't know him, he's built like a football player, plays baseball. He's a celebrity Christian. If he walks in the back door, all of you would want him to sit with you. You'd want to sit with him. Hey, you can sit with us. Why? He's a celebrity. If anybody well-known becomes a Christian as a celebrity, all their Christians are like, wow, yeah, they're great because they're celebrities. And they got money, and they got power, they've got position, and we treat them differently. Someone else walks in the back door and they smell different than you, they talk different than you, 
they drive a car that's different than yours, or they got an Uber here, or they walked here because they don't even have a car. I don't think we'd be tripping over each other to try to sit with them. And we'd be fine if they just actually sat by themselves. Why? Because we still struggle with partiality. We treat wealthy people better because we want them to be friends. Why? Who wants wealthy friends? Oh, yeah. Well, because if I get in need and I really have a really wealthy friends, those friends can help me. But who wants poor people for friends? Eh, they're needy. They're going to be calling me. They're going to be needing a ride places. They're going to be needing, they're really needy people. And we think, I don't need more needy people in my life. But no matter who walks in the door, we have got to learn as Christians, if we're going to say, Jesus, you're the one I adore, and you're the one I'm following, which means Jesus is going to do whatever Jesus did, we're going to follow in his footsteps. And where did he spend his time? He could have spent his time with only wealthy people. All he would have done, had to do, is say, hey, any wealthy people that are sick, I'll heal only wealthy people. And then he would have all the wealthy people as friends. But that's not what he did. He went to the outcasts. He went to a screaming guy in the, who was everyone was afraid of in the tombs and healed him of demon possession. He healed all, all people, regardless of their nationality, regardless of their social status. James writing as Jesus' half-brother knows what his half-brother was like when he was on earth. And James, now a follower of Christ and a pastor of the Jerusalem church, is seeing in Jerusalem, like any major city, you're going to have the wealthy section of town, you're going to have the section of town that we avoid. You're going to have a lot of people in the middle. And we're probably fine with being in the middle, but we avoid this, and we aspire or love to talk to people up here while we live in the middle. But James says, no matter who comes into your assembly, your church, your gathering, it was home churches probably when James was pastoring in Jerusalem. They didn't have any church buildings for another 150 years or so after this, as far as we can tell in church history, because of persecution they didn't have, and the funds they couldn't, um, they couldn't legally uh, build a church. So they would have house churches, and those house churches probably had people that were evangelistic and so told their neighbors and co-workers, hey, come and find out what we do at our, as we gather together on the Lord's Day. On Sunday, we gather together. So there comes in people that, of all, of wealthy people that are curious, of poor people that are curious. And so we evaluate people based on what they wear, just like we do today. And James says, in verse 1, what's he say? Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. So don't claim to be a follower of Christ and then show partiality based on finances. Don't treat people that drive Lamborghinis any differently than people that have to walk here because they don't even have a car. Don't treat them any differently. That is extremely hard in our human nature to do this. 
That's why James says he appeals to us as we hold the faith of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you are trusting Christ as Lord, so follow Jesus and don't show any partiality and calls Jesus the Lord of glory. So I think to summarize this, what we, what we would say is partiality doesn't glorify Christ, who is the Lord of glory. Do you want to glorify God? As a Christian, you're saying, yes. If you're not a Christian, you're saying, I don't know. I don't really care. But if you know Christ, you want to glorify him. And so James is going to tell us he is the Lord of glory. And so don't show partiality or you're not going to be glorifying Christ because he is the Lord. You have faith in Christ. He is your Lord. He is the Lord of glory. So avoid partiality like you do um, Triple E in Methuen, right? With the mosquitoes right now. So it is, it is dangerous uh, to our church. It is dangerous to your soul and to your growth as a Christian. Avoid partiality, which today looks like racism, which looks like in our country racism, in other countries the caste system and other tribal um, wars and other things that happen. Um, and partiality is going to be rampant across the globe until people come to Christ. But Christians should be radically different. There should be no partiality in a gathering of Christ's followers. That's what James says. And then he gives us an, an illustration that we can identify with, a man who dresses up, who looks nice, he's got wealthy stuff on, he looks wealthy, he talks wealthy. Today he would drive wealthy and he comes, and we know who he is. He is somebody. We don't maybe know who he is, but he is somebody. Verse 2 says that. You, a man who wears a gold ring, fine clothes in your assembly. James is writing to all those who are scattered abroad, and everybody knows how wealthy people dress. Pharisees wanted to dress so that they looked wealthy. Sadducees as well, very wealthy people. But then there comes into your assembly a poor man in shabby clothes. He may have gotten his clothes at Savers or he found them on the side of the road or going through uh, a bags that people donated just to find something to wear because winter's coming in New England. It's going to be cold. He just has to have something to wear. There comes a poor man in shabby clothes. And you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say to that man, sit here in a good place. While you say to the poor man, you stand over there, sit at my feet. So from what I can tell from their gatherings, like it would be if you had a house and you didn't have a lot of extra chairs, you may have only seating for 10 or 15 at your house right now in your living room, but you say 30 people show up to your home church, what are you going to do? Well, the older people get the chairs. Okay, that's great. That's a way to do it. And younger people who can sit on the floor. That's fine. So, but if you had a really wealthy guy show up, you'd say, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's got to have a chair. He's not sitting on the floor in my house. Right? We don't think that way. But if someone comes into our house and they look torn clothes and we maybe have seen them sit on the curb or begging or whatever, you'd say, they've already used to be sitting on the floor, so let's just have them sit on the floor here. You can see how we'd say that or think that. Naturally so. But James says this shouldn't happen. Partiality to God and Christ who we're trying to please always looks bad. It needs to look bad to us. And we need to challenge ourselves and each other. Don't show partiality. 
We don't give wealthy people something better than we do poor people. We give everybody the same. And that takes intentionality. It takes constant against what is natural to do this. Um, verse 3 says, you pay attention to the one and say, sit here in a good place. You say to the poor man, you stand here, sit at my feet. It's okay. Verse 4, so you're, you're not giving up your chair. You're saying, just sit, sit underneath me because you're used to sitting. It doesn't really matter. You won't give up your chair even for him. Verse 4, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves? And the only distinction that matters is really wealth. That's how our culture looks at stuff, right? It looks at people. Evaluate everybody according to wealth and put them in a class and then treat them differently. It may be a race, it may be a tribe in other countries, it may be a caste system, but all partiality doesn't please God in his church. So you've made, you've made distinctions among yourselves and you've become judges with evil thoughts. Ooh, now this, we're in, bad, we're in a bad position. Partiality, when we judge other people and try to put them, categorize them, and say, you are below me, which means I don't want my kids hanging out with you that much, or I definitely don't want my kids marrying you, then we have become judges with evil thoughts. I told you my college was racist when I went there. I didn't know any better. It wasn't a big deal to me. But they changed the rule uh, halfway through. Um, and now it's not a big deal, I don't think. Um, but we all have, we all struggle with, even in our culture, racism. You say it doesn't happen in New England. If you go to the South, it definitely happens. My wife grew up in the South. It definitely happens. My friends there, every culture, whether we say it or not, because now it's culturally inappropriate to say this, we have to be politically correct, and we... Uh, try to be more refined as a culture, but people are thinking it. If you talk to people individually, what really is the, is the key is, I am not partial, but I will not allow my kids to hang out or marry people of other races. You're a racist then. Plain and simple. Okay, that is the decision. Because I don't want to associate with them, right? I want to have some distance. I'm fine with them being in church. I'm fine with them in my house and being friends. But I will not allow them to cross these boundaries that I have. And every culture has. I've talked to a lot of people and a lot of different cultures, and they every culture has it. We have to be aware that this should not happen for Christians. When we are in Christ, we're all the same. That's what James 1 says. That's what James 2 says. Partiality, when we think racist thoughts, we become judges with evil thoughts. Are we the judge? No, we are not. Who's the judge? Christ. He judges righteous judgment. And you know what? Christ shows no partiality with who he saves. There's no distinctions. When Christ comes, the Jews had a distinction with the Gentiles. And Christ says, all distinctions are off. The church said that in Acts 15. No distinctions between Jew and Gentile. We're all the same. We're all Christians. There's not the Jewish Christian who are better because you're Old Testament and you're chosen by God, Gentile Christian. No, there's no, there's no distinction. Ephesians 2 says that. James 2 says, when, this is how you treat people. Racism needs to die. It should definitely die with Christians. If the culture wants to continue it, that's between them. But when Christians get saved out of a racist culture, the racism should stop. 
completely. And so partiality does put us in a bad position because James says here, uh, the Holy Spirit through James says that we become judges with evil thoughts. I am better than you is what a racist person thinks or does. So I'm going to avoid you or I'm going to limit you or contact or whatever it is. And we have to be on guard for that. We are naturally all racist. We are all naturally partial to people around us. It puts us in a bad position when we act on it. It should not happen in a church. That's the rebuke. We need a rebuke to wake us up. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen the poor in this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Have you dishonored him? Well, how they treated him whenever they came into your church or your assembly. Verse 6, but you have dishonored the poor and are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? You can see in the book of Acts, chapter 3 and 4 and other places, when Peter goes after the, the religious leaders of Christ's day, and they have dishonored and blasphemed Jesus' name. And Acts 4.12 says, there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. We will not permit or allow someone to blaspheme Jesus' name in our presence, on purpose, and give them a place of honor. That does not make sense. If wealthy people who dishonor Christ come into your house, don't give them a place of honor because they're dishonoring Christ. You give the people a place, if you have this option of giving them a place of honor or dishonor, you give the people honor who love him. It doesn't matter if they're poor. And it's opposite of how you normally think. That's what he's saying here in verses 5 uh, to 7. So what are the results of, um, or thinking, the reasoning that should lead to some results? The reasoning is, typically in this culture, in James's culture, wealthy people rejected God and poor people accepted God. It is still somewhat of that today in many cultures. I have tried to witness to people that were multimillionaires, and you know what? They, they just blow you off. Like, I don't need Christ as a Savior because I have money. Everything that Christ, you say that Christ can do for me, provide for me, give me security, I got that in money. I don't need, I don't need a Savior. You poor people, you people that are needy, they, yeah, they need a Savior. But there are wealthy people in the Bible, right? And even in the New Testament. You know of some? Joseph of Arimathea, the guy who gave Jesus the tomb. Nicodemus came to Jesus by night. In the, the book of Acts, probably Barnabas was wealthy, had enough land to sell it and give the proceeds to the poor. Ananias and Sapphira lost their lives, but they were probably wealthy, uh, having land to sell. Um, and there might be others that have, have means. So, But typically... So as a general rule, we'd say, wealthy people don't need Christ and poor people are more open to Christ. So many churches have more uh, poor people in, in cultures than they do wealthy people. Why? Because God chooses the poor of this world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom. That's what he says here in verse 5. 
Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen? So when we show partiality, we're going opposite of what God has chosen. We, we can discern after time with people whether or not they truly are believers. How does it help us? How do we discern that? Well, verse 5 continues. These people are rich in faith. Can we tell people that are rich in faith? Yes, we can. How do we tell them? Well, James has given us some ideas already. They go through trials and their faith gets stronger and their trust in the Lord gets stronger and they haven't turned away from God in trials. They've gone through various trials and they're enduring those trials. So those people have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Also, when Jesus' name is mentioned in an assembly, like we're singing, we just sang, Jesus, you're the one we adore and you have a hard time. If not, it's impossible for you to say those words you don't have the faith in the Lord Jesus Christ or you're far from him. But if singing about the glory of the Lord and the glorious Lord, you're like, I love singing truths like that. Okay? We can tell. Okay? We, you, can, you can put it on. Uh, but eventually, as you go through various trials, you'll be evident that whether or not your life is producing fruit so, and also we can tell, look at the end of verse 5, which he has promised to those who love him. Do people really love Jesus? Can you tell if people love Jesus? Yes. How can we tell if they want to do what he says? If you're arguing and arguing and encouraging someone and warning them to follow Christ and they have no desire, they don't want to do what the Bible says, and they might not be Christians. But Christians, those who follow the Lord of glory, Jesus as the Lord Jesus Christ, they want to follow him. They want to be like him. Why? Because they love him. Why do they love him? Because he first loved us. Do you love him? Yes, you should. Your love should grow as you learn about him. So what does James say about these results of partiality, the poor love Christ like us. And anyone who loves Christ like us should be honored in our eyes because we love brothers and sisters in Christ. But the culture says poor people, eh. wealthy people, yeah. We, don't, we need wealthy, we don't need the poor. Wealthy people harm us and Christ. It was so in James's day, and it says here specifically that the rich ones are the ones who oppress you and they drag you into court. They've got money to pay for lawyers and other court fees and things like that to this day. Verse 7, are they not the ones? And this is how they treat you, and here's how they treat Christ. We look at how people treat Christ and discern whether or not they're truly believers. How do wealthy people treat Christ? They blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called. We're called Christians. Yes. So anyone who blasphemes Christ is not our friend. And we'll pray for them. We'll try to serve them and witness to them. But they're not a brother in Christ if they blaspheme Christ. You can't. And typically, wealthy people say, I do not need Jesus Christ. It is very hard, even in our culture, where a lot of people in our culture, compared to the rest of the world, are very wealthy. It's hard to witness to people who have it all. They've got insurance. They've got the best doctors in the world. They've got medicine. They've got 
cars, they've got a lot of money in the bank and their 401k, they're all set financially. They don't need Christ and they definitely don't need a church. They're all set. Any problem they have, they just write a check. You try to convince them they need a savior. Then I don't need a savior. From what? I'm a good person. No, you're not. You need Jesus Christ as Lord. So typically, poor people love Christ. Not all poor people. There are poor people that are um, that are ungodly and won't love Christ. And we're always going to be the minority. The minority of poor people uh, are those who love Christ. But it's harder for a wealthy person to get into heaven, Christ said. And right after that is when uh, Zacchaeus gets saved, wealthy man. And the disciples said, it's impossible then. Who can be saved? And then Zacchaeus gets saved. And how does he show that he's saved? He gives away half of his wealth. And anyone he cheated, he gives them fourfold, obeying the Old Testament. He shows obedience, and Jesus says, now we know this man is a believer because there's a radical change in how he views money. He's not holding his money. He's using money as a tool to serve the Lord. So the results of partiality, the poor love Christ, the wealthy harm us like Christ, and or harm us because they, they harm us and they don't love Christ. And then verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The royal law called that because that is a summary of all of the Old Testament laws as it dealt with us and people. And this goes back to Deuteronomy 6 in summary of the 5 to 10 of the Ten Commandments. Commandments number 5 to 10. If you summarize those, honor your father and mother down to thou shalt not covet. All those, um, how to obey all of them, and you just love your neighbor as yourself. You will obey all five or all seven of those uh, commandments. Six, I'm sorry. Uh, commandments 5 to 10. Verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. But if you show partiality... You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. Now, culturally, it's, it has been, in our culture, acceptable to be a racist. But now it's becoming culturally unacceptable. So now we try to stay culturally acceptable, whatever it is. If you go to India, it's culturally acceptable to be in the caste system. In a church, you should have all of the castes. If you had a church in a city, all the castes are welcome, and there's no caste system when you come to church. None. Shouldn't happen. Uh, tribal uh, situations, there's uh, different tribes that are heads of the tribes and others that are the servant tribes. Nope, shouldn't have any of that uh, as you have. And he, he's writing to, tri or to chur churches who are scattered abroad. So there are a lot of different cultures that James is writing to. Um, Jewish people in those cultures, and they are, if they're evangelistic, they're seeing people getting saved all over the Roman Empire. And James helps them with there are, I mean, you imagine a church that has slave owners and slaves in the same church? That's would be that would be James. That's his culture. I mean, this is not racism as of in our in our country 150 years after the Civil War. This is like racism and, and cultural slavery while it's happening in the Roman Empire. Remember Onesimus and Philemon? There's an example of a slave owner and a slave, both in the same church. And when they come to church, they're brothers. When they go back to home, they're slave owner, lord, and, and slave. So how does, that, how does that function? 
there's no partiality. So what does uh, verses 8 to 11 say? Partiality is a sin against God. And when you see the word transgressor, that's breaking the law. What law are we breaking whenever we are racist or show partiality? We're breaking that you shall love your neighbor as yourself, which is the second of the greatest commandments. First, you shall love the Lord your God. Second, love your neighbor yourself. What did Jesus say in in, um, Matthew 22? He summarized these. What does he say in John um, chapter 13? By this all will know you are my disciples, if you have love one to another. And James is going to build on that teaching and say, you're showing partiality, you're showing that you're not really following Christ. Because you're showing, you're disobeying God's law, love your neighbor as yourself, by showing partiality. You're convicted of the law. You're guilty. What's verse 10 say? This is the a verse that's uh, familiar. Whoever keeps the whole law, yet it fails in one point, has been become accountable for all of it. So, if you break one part of the law, you have broken God's law. You're a transgressor. For one who says, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. And if you commit adultery but do not murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So you can't say, I'm going to obey these commands. I'm not going to obey these commands. Jesus taught that way too. And now uh, James is teaching this way uh, for us to say, you know what? Partiality is just as bad as adultery and murder. Yes, it is. Yes, it is. It doesn't honor Christ. It doesn't glorify Christ. It's a sin. So verse 11 uh, finishes and says, If you do not commit adultery but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So partiality is a sin against God. So verses 12 and 13, and we're done. What's the response? James tells us the response. After rebuke, results of this, we become guilty before God. So now we're guilty. As James has challenged us already, when you're guilty, what do you do? You better do something about it. You can't just say, okay, I'll be less racist. Nope, doesn't please God. God, show me all the racism thoughts that I've ever had that I've ever not confessed and thought it was fine because it's culturally acceptable, and those are sin. Yes. What does he say in verse 12? So speak and so act. So speak against partiality. And James, in his writing to many churches and uh, the Jews who are scattered abroad, he's expecting them to take what he writes and teach them to all their congregations. And so when he says, so speak this in your church, don't allow partiality in your church, your assemblies at all. The leaders need to be on guard for this. They need to be teaching this. They need to be modeling this. So he says in verse 12, so speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. We've seen the law of liberty. That phrase sounds familiar because it's back in verse 25 of chapter 1. Look back there with me. But the one who looks into the perfect law, the law of liberty, and perseveres, being not a hearer of who forgets but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So this is a little bit complicated, verses 12 and 13. Oh, I um, studied as much as I could this week. And this is what I think um, the best interpretation is. Speak and act for Christ because he set us free from partiality. The word of God in chapter 1, verses 22 to 25, sets people free from their blemishes. So when you look in the perfect law of God, it shows you blemishes in your character, and you go, and that, if you will take God's word and say, this says I am, shouldn't be partial, and I have been partial. Okay, I'm taking that, and if I obey this, it will set me free. 
So the law of liberty is a law that sets us free. If you can stay trapped in sin if you want as a Christian, you can stay strapped, uh, trapped in your racism and your partiality till the day you die and think you're better than other people, or there's this caste system, or whatever you think in your, in the, in your way of, uh, in your culture has taught you. But that's not Christianity. You can be free from that, though, if you will look at God's word and say, you know what my responsibility is? To love everyone because I have to love all um, as Christ loved me. I have to love my neighbor as I'd want to be loved. That's it. If you will wake up thinking, I have to love other people like Christ has loved me, you'll be set free from partiality. That's it. That's simple, but it's very difficult because we have been ingrained in a racism. I've got relatives, and you probably have relatives that are older, they may have passed, but it was obvious then that they were racist. And you may have come from other countries, and many of you have, and you can say, oh yes, in these other countries that I've moved from, there's obvious system of that you don't cross the line of your status. Yes, there is, but it shouldn't be so as Christians. And imagine what happens in a church if there was this system here and James writes to them and now the leaders say, you know what James just told us, the pastor of Jerusalem that we had to flee from when Paul or Saul of Tarsus started persecuting Christians. Uh, James told us not to show partiality to wealthy or uh, poor and that there's no more the wealthy people get these seats and the unwealthy people have to sit on the floor in our, in our assemblies. That's not going to happen at all. Can you imagine what would happen in their churches? The wealthy people might not like it, and the poor people love it. Until they think, wait a minute, we're being influenced by our culture instead of influenced by Christ. Yes. So we're going to be influenced by Christ more. That's right. So we have to speak and we have to act for Christ, because Christ has set us free with the law of liberty. And verse 12 uh, Ends in verse 13 says, For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy, and mercy triumphs over judgment. Now think about this. We are all guilty before Christ as transgressors of the law. Correct? We all deserve to go to hell because our God is holy and just. Is that correct? It is. And we deserve to be under God's judgment. Yes, that's right. We all, because we all break God's law. But many of us who have trusted, all of us who have trusted Christ, and many here, we are extremely glad that mercy triumphs over judgment. We're not going to get judged. We're going to experience the mercy of God. And every day in heaven is going to be because God is merciful to us who are sinners. So we must show mercy, not judgment to others, because God's mercy is greater than his judgment. That's verse 13. Remember the word judges back in verse uh, 4? You've made a distinction. If we are racist, we show partiality, we set ourselves up as a judge, we know what's right, we're listening to the culture, the culture says this is what's right, everybody stays in their, in their uh, strata or whatever, their layer of culture, and no one can move uh, within and out, and uh, that's how it has to be for our culture to function well, and that is not how the church functions well. It functions well when we all just have, we're all brothers and sisters in Christ, 
We have Christ as our head, and we're imitating Christ and showing no partiality at all. When we love Christ, we love others also, and that love destroys partiality. And the color of someone's skin, their wherever they were born, does not matter at all whenever you're a Christian. It shouldn't, and you're in church. So we show mercy. We speak and act. We have to be constantly on guard because our culture is going to keep coming at us from all dire- different directions and different ways, and the, you'll see it in the news, you'll hear it, uh, and it's, it's going to be constant bombardment. But as a church, we have to say, you know what? We're, this is not, we are in this culture, but this culture is not in us. We're going to be different by God's help and mercy. We're going to show mercy and love to all people and um, go against our culture. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you so much for the truth that you've given us, this truth that will set us free if we will speak and act based on what we've learned. Help us to be doers of the word now and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. Help us to go to people that we may have offended by our um, partial partiality type thinking and speech and go back to them and apologize. Tell them that your word has changed the way we think and must we must speak now and show love and kindness and ask for their forgiveness. I pray that your spirit would not let us go until we obey the word this week. I pray that we would always be on guard for the preaching in our culture is to be divided uh, along race lines or other lines that are not helpful and not biblical. And I pray that we would have grace to show love and your mercy to all. We'll allow you to judge And we will just be servants of you, the Most High God, and follow Christ our Savior. Help us to have his mind. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.